All of you here at Gospel of Grace. We'll um Uh oh. No, I've done it. I got something wrong with my I'll get this going here. Sorry, my PowerPoint. There we go. All right, I'll, we'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day together. We thank you that we can come and learn your word and that we can sing your praises. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to learn your wisdom, that we would shy away from the path that leads away from you and that we'd be on the narrow path, Lord. So give us wisdom as to how to live our lives that are pleasing to you through your book of Proverbs. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, dear ones, this is a message. I look back. It's been so long since we've been in Proverbs. And again, what my desire is, is to go chapter by chapter now and get through it. And I think um, one of the problems with Proverbs, you can get bogged down in it, and you don't see the forest through the trees. So I want to be able to see the forest through the trees. So we'll try to do a chapter at a time, and it'll be more of an overview at that point. But uh, this is a message I actually gave back in May. Now, I want to tell you all uh, something I'm working on. I, as I've been doing my rehab on my leg... I became very, um, I, I kind of got into YouTube theology videos that I'd watch as I'm doing my rehab, and I started looking at eschatology debates, and I was very um, dismayed at the lack of good content in the Olivet Discourse, the understanding of eschatology in general. So what I was going to do is try to develop my own YouTube channel, and I'm going to come up with some name like um, Eschatology with Pastor Eric, something that has two E's in it. And what I want to do is to help refute a lot of the bad ideas and then help people understand the Olivet Discourse and the data as the New Testament. So, yeah, so I've been working on that a little bit. And once it launches, um, I've got my son who will help me with the technology, of course, because I can't do a lick of that. But I'll let you know. So anyway, I might test out some of those messages here and there on you and see if I can hone that in a little bit. Have yeah, I have had it. But other than that, we'll try to get through Proverbs. After we're done with Proverbs, we're going to go to the book of Daniel and then from Daniel to Zechariah. So I'll try to keep in the Old Testament a little bit on my side of the things for the, for the Sunday school. So with that, this is a message. It's all about wisdom bringing true life. And I want you to think about how God's wisdom does bring about security and well-being in a person's life. Not meaning, not meaning that somehow a believer lives a life that isn't filled with trials and tribulations. That is promised us for sure. But the point that the writer of Proverbs is making here, probably Solomon, is that it is the believer who can uniquely lay his head on the, or her head on the pillow at night and have a clear conscience. Why? Because our conscience has been cleansed through the blood of Christ. And as we walk that path of righteousness that God has ordained for us, remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you've been... You've been saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then remember the next verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so part of the good works is living a life of wisdom and that we don't get ensnared by the evils of the world. And so that's how you and I can live in such a way where we may have trials and tribulations, but we still have a clear conscience. And that's what Proverbs is telling us about here. So with that, let's look at the structure of this section. I know it's been since May of 2022, so you probably don't remember this. But verses 13 through 18, it's the hymn of wisdom. And it actually has an inclusio. Remember, an inclusio 
The Bible writers use it quite often as where you have a common theme at the beginning and at the end. And here you have the term blessed, and we'll talk about what that means. The term is ashray. And then you have blessed at verse 18. Blessed are you, blessed is the man, blessed, and that's how the, the hymn goes. Then after the hymn, when you get to verses 19 through 20, we see wisdom's role in creation. And the idea here is those who stand against God's wisdom are really living in a way that's contrary to the way the world was made. And an example I used, I think, back in May was you kind of see that, I believe, in the global warming movement. They just live in a way that's contrary to the way the world really is. Okay, so we'll talk about that. Verses 21 through 26, we talk about wisdom and security there. How true wisdom leads to security, not in the sense that people won't persecute you for your faith, not that, but security in the sense that when you lay your head down at night, you can say, look, I'm living in a blameless way before the Lord. I'm not following the path of the unrighteous because I'm following the precepts of the Lord. Verses 27 through 30, wisdom and being benevolent, that is, we should be people who are generous to others. Verses 31 through 35 is the warning of criminal behavior. And I don't think anyone here is at risk for following the criminal element, but I do tell you some of our young kids, I look at my 13-year-old, the way he acts, it's often like a criminal, <laughs> being the teenager that he is. Uh, he... Um, He's quite a fellow. He's, you know, he's just a typical teenager. Mark Twain famously said, when your kid reaches adolescence, put him in a barrel with a knothole. When they reach late adolescence, fill up the knothole. That was his advice. So anyway, that's good wisdom for them. Now let's begin with wisdom is greater than riches. We see that in verses 13 through 15. Solomon said, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Now, dear ones, notice here the term blessed. We talked about this last time. Notice in blue the term is ashray. And here what I would claim is that ultimately being blessed has to do with status before God and it doesn't have to do with something that we have in our lives. Um, in other words, it's not symptomatic. I had a good day today. I, I went through all the green lights. My car had plenty of gas. I got plenty of sleep. I'm blessed. Well, yesterday was a bad day. I hit all the red lights. My car didn't start. My boss was angry. I'm cursed. No, that's not how blessing and curses work in the Bible. The blessing is a status because you and I belong to God through faith in Christ. We have his favor. And let me re um, relate this to a passage in the New Testament. Remember in the book of James, it talks about how when a person is sick, the elders are to go to that person and anoint them with oil. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, the oil had medicinal purposes. I don't think that that was the purpose. In fact, sometime read Psalm 23, Remember, David was anointed. And the idea is that he bore God's favor. And the element there is Bob has been talking a lot about episcopate, the idea of visitation, God visits us. Remember, one of the terms for elder is the episcopos, the one who visits on behalf of God. And so in some sense, when we're visiting the sick and anointing them with oil, the image is that they still have God's favor. Because anointing someone was a reminder, it was a symbol it didn't convey 
the favor with God. That comes through faith alone in Christ alone. But it is a symbol and therefore a reminder. Even though you're sick and you're at home and you're not in the fellowship, you still have the favor of God. You're still blessed. That's what it's about. And yes, God can heal as we pray for the person as well. Okay, so that's what I want you to think about is being blessed has to do with status. It's not symptomatic. And obviously the opposite of that would be cursed. If you're cursed, you're outside of God's favor, it doesn't matter how many good days you have. You're still storing up wrath for the day of wrath, as Paul says in Romans 2.5. But notice who is blessed. Well, it's the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Wisdom and understanding here are in some sense in synonymous parallelism. So we don't want to create too much of a divide between them, but there is a little nuance. I think wisdom here, the term kokma, has to do with understanding. Understanding the precepts of the Lord. Or understanding, it could be even wisdom in how to do your job. You have understanding as a tool maker or you're uh, working a machine press. Whereas the, I'm sorry, that's wisdom, that's kokma. The understanding is actually buna. That has to do with the skill and ability. Wisdom, the idea of kokma, is the idea of how to use your skills at the right time, in the right way, for the right reason. So let me just back up. I think I goofed that up. Wisdom, kokma, is how to use your skills, your understanding, your buna, at the right time, for the right reasons, uh, etc., etc. That's the idea. And so let me give you an example. When I was a flight instructor, a lot of times I'd have a young guy, and they could fly really well. They would typically get good stick and rudder skills. So they could land in crosswinds and they could... But so they had under... Excuse me, they would have understanding, buna, but they didn't have any wisdom as to how to use it. They would fly in the worst weather. They wouldn't study. And so all of a sudden they'd do a cross country and they weren't communicating with air traffic control and they'd bust into the terminal control area. So that's kind of the difference. The idea... Think of this. You have the skill set, but do you have the wisdom as to know how to use it? And that was the problem with one of my young students. He had a lot of skills, but he didn't have the wisdom how to use it. The scriptures calls, it, calls us to both. That you and I would use the skills of our life in order to glorify God. Now, notice here in verse 14, this idea of wisdom and understanding. It says, her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than gold. Now here, it's interesting, the pronoun for wisdom is personified. Does everyone see that her? And you see that quite often with wisdom. It's personified. And we do the same thing. Ships are always she. She, she really runs at 30 knots, you know. Um, I suppose now today with pronoun trouble, it could probably be a he or it or what have you. But it used to be her, right, with a ship, right? It was the Queen Mary. It wasn't the Prince Andrew, the ship, right? So, yeah, for her profit is better than the profit of silver, and are gained better than fine gold. Why is it so precious? Because it leads down the path of righteousness. Following the precepts of God live, means that you live a life that's pleasing to him. And that's more precious than any of the fine minerals that you may have out there. That's the idea. Notice verse 15, it says, She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Ultimately, wisdom is found by having faith in Christ. That's what we see when we come to the New Testament. If you want to have wisdom, it's found in the gospel. 
Now, I want to turn your attention to the wisdom that the Messiah was to have. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah 11.2. Turn your Bibles there. And the reason I want you to see the wisdom that the Messiah was to have is when you and I belong to him by faith and we become followers, we are to walk in his wisdom, in his ways. Why is it that we are the people who uniquely say all human beings made in the image of God deserve protection? Well, it comes from the wisdom that comes from the Lord. And so we end up sheltering people and sparing people, whereas the world would throw them down or murder them even in the womb. And there's a practical example. 60 million children were murdered by people who don't have any wisdom. And there's a practical result of having the wisdom that comes from Messiah. We save people. Who was the greatest force for getting rid of slavery in the 18th century? It was Christians primarily in England. Uh, remember, there was a, I've talked about this numerous times. There was a man named Granville Sharp, and he was sharp. He came up with a grammatical construction in Titus 2.13 called the Granville Sharp Rule. It has an article, substantive chi, substantive construction. And what does it mean? It means that God and Savior is one person, namely Jesus Christ. You don't have two persons, God and then the Savior Jesus Christ, so God the Father and Savior. No, God and Savior in that passage in Titus 2.13 is one person. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. Okay, that was a man who was learning Greek because he wanted to become a better communicator of the scriptures to thwart the problem of slavery and, of course, to preach the gospel. And so there's wisdom from the people of God. And notice where does it come from? It comes from the Messiah that we follow, Isaiah 11:2. It says, The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. Stop there. Well, that's interesting. This passage says if you will follow the precepts, you're going to have wisdom and understanding too, and you're blessed. So if Messiah has the wisdom and the understanding, and you belong to him by faith, what, what are you? You're blessed. You're going to follow his ways. Notice it says the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew 12.42. Matthew 12.42. This comes right after Jesus has that controversy with the Pharisees regarding his disciples picking grains of wheat on the Sabbath. And as they do so, what do the Pharisees accuse the disciples of doing? They, they say, well, you're Sabbath breakers. Well, what Jesus reminds them of in his wisdom is that the priesthood, they work every Sabbath, and yet they're not Sabbath breakers. Why? Well, because the work in the temple of sacrificing animals so that people can have atonement is more important than not working on the Sabbath day. And so he does a lesser to greater where he says, if in fact they're not guilty, how much more am I not guilty, the Son of Man who's even greater than the temple? That's his argument. Why? Because the atonement that all the sacrifices are pointing towards are found in Christ. So if the priests aren't guilty, who give bulls and goats, who according to Hebrews 10.4 can't give you atonement, they could never provide atonement, but were foreshadowing, as Paul says in Colossians 2, of Christ, how much less is Christ guilty of breaking the Sabbath? That's the idea. And so that's the wisdom that you see in this passage. So wisdom 
is all through Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says, The queen of the south, by the way, that was Sheba, Queen Sheba from 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. If you think that Solomon had wisdom and might and power and knowledge, how much more the greater Davidic son, the Messiah. That's one of the arguments he's using. By the way, notice in this passage where it says he will rise up, I should say she, Queen Sheba, will rise up with this generation. Bob Dewey wrote a great article some years ago on how to understand the phrase, this generation. And let me explain. I'm going to talk about my eschatology real quick. I'll be handling this issue. As, does anyone in here know what a preterist is? I know Bob does. A preterist, they are people who believe that all of the events in the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation were fulfilled in 70 A.D., Yeah, whoops. And one of the reasons they do that is this phrase, this generation, because Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, all these things will come upon this generation. And they say, aha, it has to be within the lifespan of the disciples because that would be this generation. So they use it for a window of time or a quantity of time. But what Bob, I think, accurately shows in his research article is that the way this generation is used, it's not talking about a quantitative amount of time. In other words, people for that 40-year period versus this 40-year period. So it's not about quantity, it's about a quality. A quality of people rather than a quantity. In other words, generation is used as a pejorative. If you're part of this generation, you're part of the unbelieving masses that have always existed from Adam to now. And so that's why, for example, in Mark chapter 9, remember the disciples failed to cast out the demon? And what does Jesus say of his disciples who belong to him? Oh, what should I do with this unbelieving generation? He throws them in that group, not because they really are, but because they're acting like it. So this generation doesn't have to do with a time period. It is a quality of people who are characterized by unbelief. A wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it. Uh, Matthew 23, all these things will come upon this evil generation. It's a quality of people, and it doesn't matter when you lived. It just matters if you have unbelief, and that is what qualifies you being this generation. So those are the types of things I want to lay out in our eschatology to show that, yes, the Olivet Discourse has been greatly misunderstood. But again, what is Jesus saying here? That this generation of unbelievers will be given testimony against by even the Queen of Sheba who saw the wisdom of Solomon. Yes, Linda. Could could you just define pejorative? Yes, pejorative would be um, a... um, uh, an insult. Uh, yeah, a, a negative, uh, uh, like saying fool to somebody, a pejorative. It's, it's a mean thing to say, but in this case, there's, it's true, right? So it's a pejorative in the sense of saying something that's negative about someone, a negative assessment. And so that's how Jesus is using this generation. He's not using it for a group of a, a period of time. He's using it for a quality of people. So in other words, let's say the Lord doesn't return for another 100 years. 
Let's say he returns in the year 2200 even. All the people from the time of Adam to 2200 that are unbelievers are part of this generation. And that's why Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all my words are fulfilled, until all these things come to pass. He makes those promises. And so that's how he uses it in the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, very good question, though. That's a pejorative. I'm sorry, did somebody else have the mic? No, we're good. All right. Now, turn your Bibles one more time. I want you to see the wisdom in the gospel. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. And again, this is how we're blessed, ultimately, is by coming to faith in Christ through the wisdom of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Notice it says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, so here's the elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So where is the ultimate wisdom found? It's found in the gospel of Christ. And so that's how we can be blessed and have true wisdom. Again, notice in the underline, nothing you desire will compare with that wisdom. Why? Because it sets you on the path of life. Now, notice here, God's wisdom yields eternal life. And now we see why it's so valuable. Verses 16 through 18, he says, Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and blessed are all who hold her fast. Again, notice here in verse 16, we have this continuation of the personification of wisdom. Does everyone see that? So long life comes from wisdom, and wisdom here is personified. Now, notice here in verse 17, it says, all her ways or paths lead to what? Peace. And I think this should be the idea of shalom, peace in its most comprehensive sense. The idea of not just, well, I don't have warfare with fellow people, that's part of it. Or I get along with my children now or my grandkids or my wife or what have you. It can be that sort of peace. But the ultimate peace that matters is peace with God. Every person is born into the world as an enemy of God. And so the ultimate peace that we need is peace with God. But because we have peace with God, that peace should work itself down into the way we live our lives with other people that we don't live in enmity with our neighbors, at least as much as it depends upon us. That's the idea that we see here. Sometimes we can't help at be at odds with our neighbors because they will stand for unrighteousness. And that's why the scriptures say, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. So notice verse 18, it says, She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and blessed are all who hold her fast. Notice the idea of the tree of life. That's what we were kicked out from when human beings rebelled, right, in Eden? So remember the original sin is that they wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be what? Like God. And that's ultimately our sin. We want to be like God. We'll decide for ourselves what's moral and immoral. So every time I rebel against God... I'm making that same decision. I'll, I'll decide for myself, God, 
I'll go for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil myself, God. And so that's why he had to kick us out away from the tree of life. Why? Lest we live forever, as it were, in the unregenerate state. And so as they're kicked out from Eden, the only way to get back to the tree of life is to have the forgiveness of sins. When you go to Revelation chapter 22, in paradise in the New Jerusalem, what is symbolized there, and I th it's real, I think it's real, but it's also a symbol. By the way, when we talk about something being a symbol or it being real, oftentimes it's both. Uh, let me give you an illustration of that. Do you remember in the Battle of Iwo Jima, 1945, there's that very, very famous picture of American Marines planting the flag on Mount Suribachi? It's actually the second flag raising, the first one they never got a picture of. But it's probably the most iconic picture of all of World War II, at least for us as Americans. Now, the question, is it real or is it a symbol? Yes. Marines really raised the flag on Mount Suribachi after one of the worst battles they've ever been in. But yet it's also symbolic of the fight that America had to win the Second World War. It's both. And oftentimes we see that in the Bible. I think the tree of life will really be there. There will be a tree of life and a river in the paradise of God, but it's also symbolic. What was taken away will be one day restored. But again, in, a, in the idea in Proverbs is that it can be like this wisdom, a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Why? Think about the world and the way they act. Think about the unregenerate that you know. For example, who never grew up and they continue to go bar hopping. And you think, man, they've never gotten out of their high school years. And where does it lead? It leads to a, a liver that doesn't work. It leads to problems with their relationships. It leads to death and destruction, doesn't it? But when you have wisdom and you follow the precepts of the Lord, it's like a tree of life even now. It keeps you from the troubles that are self-induced. Again, you're going to have trouble in this world because you belong to Christ and the world hated him. They're going to hate you. But you don't have to bring it on yourself. Amen. That's the wisdom that he's trying to convey to us here. Now, here we see as we come to this next section, God's wisdom is inherent in creation. Verses 19 through 20 says, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Now, what's very interesting is this whole section here, verses 19 through 20, anticipates what we will be reading again in Proverbs chapter 8. And I want you to turn there because it's, it's very beautiful what the Lord did. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. Please turn your Bibles there. And here it's talking about how the Lord had possessed wisdom from the very beginning. And one of the discussions is, is wisdom here being personified later on by the Lord. In other words, is it the Messiah that the Lord is talking about in Proverbs 8, 22 through 31? I don't think it is, but some have contended that is the case. I think it's the Messiah who, remember, is the second person of the Trinity in the pre-incarnate state and after as well. That is, in fact, the one who has wisdom as well. So I think that's what's being referred to here. So notice it says, Proverbs 8, 22, it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. What? What did he possess? Wisdom. 
Before his works of old, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was a daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. The idea here that I think is being conveyed is wisdom always belonged with God. And so therefore, because God is eternal, the wisdom that he has is eternal. And so it was in wisdom that he founded the earth. And so notice here then that this, oops, I already put that up. The section anticipates that verse. Those who refuse God's wisdom run against the very nature of the world. That's one of the ideas. If you don't have wisdom, you will live a life that is contrary to how God organized the world. And a great example of this is, I think, the people involved with the global warming movement. You you Think about you have natural resources, which God has commanded in the book of Genesis. One through nine, those chapters, we are given dominion as human beings over the planet. That we may subdue it, that we may be fruitful and we may multiply. Those that have a lack of wisdom would like to see human beings made in the image of God die rather than use the resources of the earth so that they can be fruitful and multiply. And by the way, that's exactly what the Nazis believed. Uh, Bob has talked about this. Uh, We read a book uh, by name. How many have read the book called Nazi Oaks? Many of you have. There's also a new name to it. It's called Nazi Ecology. And it's written by a man named Mark Musler. And what he shows is that one of the driving forces behind Nazism was the Green Movement. For example, there was a man named Arthur Schopenhauer. He was one of the famous philosophers that was the favorite of Adolf Hitler. What he was very angry with with the Jews was that they would not get rid of their belief in Genesis chapters 1 through 9 and that they considered human beings the pinnacle of God's creation that had dominion over other creatures. They wanted to see equality between humanity and the animals and the rest of the world. Well, what happened to the church in Nazi Germany was that they lost a lot of their doctrinal fortitude because they had fallen for something called neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy is like the precursor to the emerging church where you can't really know cognitively who God is you have to have an existential experience. And so they actually would claim in the neo-Orthodox movement that your Bible isn't the word of God until you have an existential experience with God and then it becomes the word of God. And so it was the experience rather than the scripture which was the final authority. It all, in my humble opinion, I think it stemmed from uh, Soren Kierkegaard Soren Kierkegaard distorted what faith was. That faith was no longer based on the evidence found in Scripture, but a blind leap into the dark without any faith at all. Well, if it's truly a blind leap 
with no evidence at all, why not become a Mormon? Why not become a Jehovah Witness? They can take a blind leap. They can have an existential experience. You know who had a great existential experience? It was Muhammad. Muhammad had one out in the desert, and he claimed to write for God and to speak for God. In fact, he became a monotheist. He took 360 gods. He wanted to be a monotheist like the Jews, and he took one, the moon god. So why do all the Islamic flags have a crescent moon? Because that's their moon god. And one day, the crescent moon's going to be filled in as they take over the world. But in their religion, you die for God and earn it. In the Bible, God died for you, and he earned it. Amen. Are those things the same? No. So you see what an existential leap in the dark can do for you? So because Germany was weakened by that, the church collapsed. So who alone would not get rid of Genesis 1 through 9? The Jews. Therefore, the Jews die. The Jews go to the gas chamber. Why? Because they don't want to give up the idea that there's a God in heaven who made human beings in his image and that human beings have dominion over the earth. What's happening now to those who don't believe that the world is going to be destroyed through us breathing? Well, you're called a denier. What's interesting is years ago, when people said that the Holocaust didn't happen, what were they called? A denier. Do you see the perversion? So what's interesting is the lack of wisdom is creating destruction on the earth. Ironically, in the book of Revelation in the last seven years, one of the judgments that God pours upon the unregenerate is for them destroying the earth. Who destroyed more acres of woodland than anyone else? Adolf Hitler did. And by the way, if you want to try to get an electric battery out of the ground and put together, oh, you're going to do a lot of damage. I was flying some uh, months ago. I'm flying down to Pipestone, Minnesota. We're in our little Cessna 172. I'm flying with my son. It's his job to navigate. I just fly. Let him navigate. <laughs> well, we come up to this huge wind farm, and there's probably, I think there was, if I remember counting right, it was 102 windmills. We counted that 51 of them weren't working at all, so half. Many of them, the blades were laying in the ground. Of course, the blades chop up a lot of birds too, don't they? And if it doesn't blow, you get the added benefit of not getting any electricity, and then therefore you freeze. But that doesn't bother those who have what? No wisdom. They have no wisdom. They, want, they run their lives contrary to the way the world really is. And so that's the idea is that those who don't have wisdom will live in a way that they're running against the very nature in which God created his environment and his world. I like this phrase here where he says, by his knowledge the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. By the way, I won't have you turn there, but you can jot it down. Genesis 7, 11 is probably what Proverbs is referring to here, Solomon, when he's talking about how that God had stopped the, the flood, that he'd finally broken it up. It says on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. I'm sorry, this is where he established the flood, but he also stops it. So here's the point. In this passage in verse 20, the idea is that in the creation, it contains both that which destroys and that which brings life. Okay, so for example, the deeps were broken up. That was the flood. That wasn't him restraining it. That was the flood being poured forth. 
Genesis chapter 7, 11, it was very destructive. But notice the skies also drip with dew. How were the Israelites preserved out in the wilderness after the Exodus event? Well, they were preserved by the dew. The dew gave them water. In fact, it says that in Exodus 16, verses 13 through 14. You can read about the manna and the dew. So whereas the deeps were broken, brought destruction, the skies drip with dew can bring life. In fact, that's used in a resurrection passage in Isaiah 26, where those who are raised from the dead, it says the experience will be like dew of the dawn. It's life-giving. So here's the point. God's creation can bring both destruction and life. And he is providentially in control of it. One of the reasons I think that that's important for us as Christians in building a Christian worldview, Bob has talked about this many a times, is that we have to not have the pagan idea that just because something is quote-unquote natural, it's good. Tornadoes are natural. Cyanide is natural. A tiger who eats somebody is natural. Rat poison, as the old saying is, 98% corn, right? So the idea is that we have to use, as people who are made in the image of God, nature for our good. And so we have to have the wisdom to use what God has created for our good. And that's why we are to till the land. That's why we are to be those who have dominion over the earth and subdue it and use it for our good. So this idea that we're going to find some pristine, old, natural something that we have to preserve, and therefore it's always good, isn't true from Scripture. We're the ones who are made in the image of God and have to use nature as our intellect and wisdom call forth. Now, we see wisdom leads to security. Wisdom will lead to a secure life. Verses 21 through 23, he says, My son, now this is a tender parental admonishment. He says, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion so there will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. Notice here, he says, my son, let them not vanish. What? The words of wisdom. The wisdom that comes ultimately from God's word. How to live and how not to live. That's the idea. Don't let them vanish from your sight. In fact, He says, they lead to what? He says, keep sound wisdom and discretion. The term discretion there is actually the term for prudence. Prudence. Have you ever seen people who are unwise, you will see a lack of prudent living. I remember some days ago, I was watching a news article, or it was a news show, and they showed a bunch of kids playing out in like a hurricane And I remember the commentator, he said, you know, if you let your 14-year-old go, he said they'd be dead in like five minutes, right? Because they do crazy things. They don't live a prudent life, right? They'll do the craziest things. They got a lot of athletic prowess, but if you let them go indefinitely, they'll end up doing something so crazy they can end up killing themselves. That's the lack of prudence and discretion. And so the idea that you and I would learn prudence and discretion, staying away from those things that cause damage, like carousing, cheating on our spouses, those types of things, it's going to lead to life. That's why he says in verse 22, they will be 
life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Notice the synonymous parallelism, life to your soul. The term soul here, nefesh, sometimes soul can refer to the immaterial portion of of a person, but sometimes nefesh just refers to the whole person. And I think probably that's intended here. I don't think Solomon is trying to divide the human body into its constituent parts. It's that it'll preserve your life as a whole. And it's an adornment to your neck. The idea of an adornment to your neck means it shows others that, in fact, you're a wise person. So it's not just life to you, but it also shows others that you have life. And again, I think it's roughly synonymous. Not only do you have life, but it shows. Now, verse 23, it says, Then you will walk in your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. I think that that's an allusion back to Deuteronomy 32-35. I say this because I... My foot stumbled. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about this passage over the last few months. Let me read this. You don't have to turn to it. All of you will remember this. Deuteronomy 32, 35. This is where the Lord, by the way, it's quoted in Romans. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, 35, God is promising one day he will judge all of his enemies. That's what he's going to do. Um, This phrase, in due time their foot will slip, I've told you that before, that that was the passage that Jonathan Edwards used in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. uh, We had that on a tape. This is how old it was. Actually, it was a CD. In our vehicle... Where remember Max McLean, he'll do readings? Well, he did a reading of the sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I remember listening to that in a tornado outbreak, heading home from my cabin to our house. It's a three-hour drive. And there was a huge cold front that had come through. And the storm was traveling at 55 miles per hour. And the storm was so powerful that when we went back up a week later, all of our panels had been thrown off our dock and we actually had sunfish that were embedded into those metal panels, like in the, in the crevices and stuff. So that's how powerful, it was the most powerful storm that I can remember ever being up at the cabin. So we're being chased by this torn, huge tornado outbreak, and we're listening in due time, their foot may slip, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I'll tell you, it was very effective. <laughs> but the point is, if you and I will live according to the precepts laid out in God's word, we don't have to worry about that day. Because our sins are forgiven. Our head can rest at night. And again, that doesn't mean we're not going to have trials. It might not mean that we have a full bank account. It might not mean that you and I are always getting along with our neighbors who hate Christ and don't want you to use electricity, etc., or have gas in your car. But it does mean that when we lay our head down, we have a clear conscience. And that's what he comes to in this next section that we, have, we don't have to be afraid. Notice verse 24 through 26. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Why? Stop there. Why will it be sweet? Because you have a clear conscience. The God of heaven and earth is pleased with you, and so if you should breathe your last, it doesn't matter. It, it, well, it does, because you're going to go with the Lord. It's great gain, as Paul says. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that happens from wisdom. You can lie down in peace. Verse 25, do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence 
and will keep your foot from being caught. The foot doesn't slip ultimately to eternity, as it were, to destruction for those who belong to God. Now, when he says you can lie down and not be afraid, that has to do with your conscience, your conscience being at ease. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter 3.21. The term conscience, the sundasis, is a term in the New Testament that has to do with your inner referee. The inner referee within your self that determines morality, whether something is right or something is wrong. Now, is the inner referee, your conscience, infallible? No. It must be informed by something outside of it. That's why we see in 1 Timothy 4, 2 through 3, some people have a seared conscience, a conscience that doesn't function properly because it's not informed by the scriptures, it's informed by the, re- the world in some way. And so they have a seared conscience. By the way, the false teachers who had that, Paul said they forbid marriage. Isn't that interesting? The forbidding of marriage is a doctrine of demon, and it comes from having a seared conscience. All right, now, notice 1 Peter 3.21. Oh, you know what? I don't have it. <laughs> well, can somebody read that for me? I'm sorry. I, uh... Brian, thank you. 1 Peter 3.21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. I just found it. I actually do have it. But thank you for reading. Same thing. thing. Yeah. (laughs) I just found it. Um, Good conscience there, sundasis. That is what we're talking about, this good conscience, inner referee. So notice... When he's talking about baptism there, he says, baptism now saves you. Aha, says the Lutheran pastor. They'll grab onto that. They say, aha, but finish the rest of it. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, it's not the act done itself, but an appeal to to God for a good conscience. So what does it mean to have a good conscience before God? It means that you and I know that we're not guilty. We have a conscience that's clear because our sins have been forgiven. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, what does it? Well, notice he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is exceedingly important in that verse. Why? Because that is what we call a synecdoche for all of the work of Christ. In other words, if we're talking about the resurrection of Christ, why didn't Peter mention the death on the cross by Christ, or his perfect life, or his miracles. Well, he uses the resurrection as the capstone for all of Jesus' ministry. That's the point. It's the capstone. So let's say the the Russians are wondering what we're doing in America, and they say, I wonder what Washington is thinking. Well, they don't care what people in Indiana are thinking, or Minnesota, or Missouri. No, the idea is Washington is where the headquarters is. It speaks for the United States. The resurrection speaks for all of Christ's work. And so the idea is that we have a good conscience through what? The finished work of Christ. It's not through the act of baptism itself, the removal of dirt from the body, but it's a good conscience that comes through the work of Christ. So the point is when you will not be afraid and you can lie your head down at night, it's because you have your sins forgiven 
you have a clear conscience through the gospel of Christ. And all of you know, if you've ever lived in sin for any length of time as a believer, it doesn't make you comfortable, does it? It bothers you because you have the Holy Spirit, and it bothers you at night, and you are the one who's driven to repentance. So think about there's two paths, the wide path to destruction and the narrow path to life. On the wide path to destruction, people fall into sin, the mud puddle of sin, and they like it. They roll around in it. They pitch their little umbrella and they say, this is the greatest thing ever. You on the narrow path to salvation, you will fall in the mud puddle of sin periodically, but you hate it. You can't stand it. You get rid of your umbrella. You won't stay there. You repent and you move out of it. That's the idea of the believer. So that's why you and I can lie down and have sleep that is sweet. Yes, Brian. I want to try to make a connection, correct me if I'm wrong, between the putting your head down and resting and Bob's and Jessica's teaching with the Dutch sheets. Yes. Okay, so if, if you don't know what God's Word says and you just go willy-nilly off in your own direction yeah. or, or you can't, or the emergent church, and you can't understand what God's Word says, then therefore you, you can't have that which we speak of now. You can't have that assurance, if you will, so you can put your head down on your pillow That's and right. rest in God's promises. Yes. Our confidence is in the promises that he's given, not in our imagination, right? So our confidence is found in the inspiration of Scripture, not in our imagination, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, Bob. In that regard, we just were talking about this when we did some recording Saturday. Yeah. It turns out, as you look at the hermeneutic, the emergent church, which is progressivism, liberalism, yes. as it's now called, everything's progressing toward paradise on earth right. without future judgment. And then the other seemingly extreme where you're going to decree yes. certain things are going to happen because we're putting ourselves in charge. Yes. Um, when you look at the actual function of how they use Scripture, they're both using the same hermeneutic. Mm. The emergent church and the new apostolic church both use uh, a version of hermeneutics where the reader determines the meaning. Right. Okay. So the emergent would take the red letters, just some of them, yeah. where it looks like you look around and see what God's doing. There's the kingdom. Right. And so in their imagination, that must be whatever idea they think God is doing. Uh, not burning hydrocarbons or something like that. Right. <laughs> and then the other would be, well, we're going to decree into what's going to happen. But yeah. when we look at the mechanics of it in the proof text, both groups are not taking the Bible according to the meaning of the Holy Spirit-inspired author. Right, amen. So when you come to the conclusion that the reader determines the meaning, now the one group will say, well, we just go by the red letters and we see this going on. Yeah. The other says, the Holy Spirit told me it means this. Right. And then they tell these stories, 
but when we actually do the, the exegetical work, there's no validity whatsoever to their use of the text. Right. So once the reader determines the meaning, call it the social gospel, compassionate church, or the strident, we're going to defeat all the wicked sinners now in history, yeah. it's still the reader determining the meaning. Right. Putting the word Holy Spirit in there, which they both do, is not uh, helping because the Holy Spirit inspired the text. That's right. So if the Holy Spirit is telling me that the text means something other than what the Holy Spirit inspired author wrote, now you have a confused Holy Spirit. Right. <laughs> and it's exactly what's going on. And so er, thank you, Eric, for this. What will truly give us this wisdom yes. and groundedness and ability to make decisions that would be honoring to God and wise is what God said. Amen. And when there's no effort to determine what that is, that's right. But you go by some other means, whether it's the blind leap of faith or something else. Yeah. There's no wisdom. That's right. And so you may have Bibles and use it all the time and have no wisdom at all because what we found out, yeah. I found this out with the Emergent Church, when they take a text, they get it wrong, ironically, almost 100% of the time. <laughs> right. It's just, if they ever get it right, it's by accident. Right. Now, how could you be wrong, 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 <laughs> wrong, over and over and over again? Right. When you dig down and see what the author meant. It's because they're, they're going by subjective metaphysical impressions and feelings and stories and yes. what I want it to be like, romantic ideas, what the world should be like, or dominion ideas of if we were in charge, then we would get rid of all the sinners and everything would be fine. Yes. It's not a love for what God said, which is a love for the truth. Yes. God cannot lie. So if the Holy Spirit cannot lie, because he's God, yeah. which is true, the true wisdom comes from what he actually said, Amen. not what we wish he said. Amen. Well said, Bob. Yes, what gives us wisdom is what the biblical authors say. It is the writers who are inspired, not the interpreter. Right. And by the way, you see this in Second Peter chapter 1. There were false teachers in Asia Minor that said the apostles had the wrong interpretation of Scripture. Remember, Peter has to say, no, we didn't, and he appeals to what? The transfiguration. The transfiguration proved that they had the right one. Yeah, Rich. What a litmus test to be able to lie down and sleep with a clear conscience. I think what you're talking about really gets down to the rubber hitting the road. Um, yes. In, in so many ways. Like, for example, in Arminianism, where's the peace? Yeah. When I feel like I'm saved as an act of my own free will, I chose the Lord, and so I keep in the Lord's good graces through Arminianistic thought. Where's the peace in that? I go to bed at night as an Arminianist, and believe me, I sure did. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, did I do enough good stuff today? Am I really still in the graces of Christ today? Right. But to know and love and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is what allows you to lay down and sleep exactly and have right. a peace of mind. Rich, well said, and let's connect it to what Bob said. Think about John 10, 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Amen. They shall never perish. So in the Arminian persuasion, you can perish. Right. 
So they shall never perish. It's the negation of the subjunctive mood. It is the strongest way that you can negate something in the Greek language because in the subjunctive mood, it's talking about possibility. So it's not just negating the indicative, which would be saying you can't perish. It's saying there's not even a possibility of their perishing. Yep. It's the strongest way, and you're absolutely right. So there's a case where are we going to go with what the, the author actually said, or are we going to say to ourselves, it can't mean that? When it says in Acts 13.48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, am I going to say it can't mean that? Or am I going to say that's exactly what the author intended? By the way, I'm getting into this with eschatology. Think about this. We'll, we'll talk about this. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. But I'll give you an example of how important authorial intent is. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, it's in the throne room. And from the throne room in the book of Revelation, you get six well, actually, seven seals, seven trumpets. The seven always opens up to the next. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and after that, Christ reigns upon the earth. So the entirety of the last seven years are these revealing of seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. But in Revelation 5.10, in the throne room, it says, regarding believers, they shall reign upon the earth. I'm looking at an amillennialist the other day. He reads Revelation chapter 20 where it says that those who had faith in Jesus are beheaded. In Revelation chapter 24, it says those who'd be beheaded came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now the author says, the same author John said in Revelation 5.10, where are we going to reign? Upon the earth. This amillennialist says, no, it can't be a real resurrection it's only a spiritual one, and it's where you go to heaven, and the thousand years isn't literal. It's you're going to be in heaven for that time period. Well, then why did the writer say, we shall reign upon the earth? Why five verses later are we on the earth after the thousand years, and all the enemies come and Gog and Magog, and they surround the beloved city, which is Israel, or I'm sorry, Jerusalem and Israel, and fire comes down and devours them? Where are we? We're on the earth. Five verses earlier, where are we? We're on the earth. What does it promise in Revelation 5.10? That they shall reign upon the earth. Again, if we will get the authorial intent right, we get our theology right. That's the issue, and that's where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from getting the author's intent correctly. That's how we can lie our head down at night and have true peace, is have wisdom that comes from what God has revealed. Not wisdom that I made up, Muslims have that sort of wisdom. They're deceived. There can be a laying your head down at night in deception. But the, the true people of God who have the wisdom from the scriptures truly can lay their head down at night and know that they have atonement, the forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that we can have true security we do pray that in our lives we would live differently than the world, that we'd not just be hearers of the word, but that we'd be doers, that we'd really live out our faith so that we live in a way that brings you honor and glory. I pray for Bob as he preaches today, uh, and we also have the Lord's Supper together. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us ears to hear, and that you'd help us to obey your, your truths that he reveals to us. We pray for stamina and strength upon him. We thank you for our time together. I pray for my brothers and sisters for protection upon them this week and bring us all here safely again next Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.